Music from this episode is available on the Twin Peaks Evangelion Spotify playlist. Check the show notes for a link. Twin Peaks Evangelion. This is a podcast uh, where we talk about Twin Peaks and we talk about Evangelion and we're coming to you with a really special episode today uh, where we're not probably not going to be talking about either of those two things, you know, despite the title of the podcast. Um, I'm joined by my buddy Vincent. Kia ora Vincent, how you doing? Hola Craig, I'm doing fine in this hellscape of a hell that we call summer. <laughs> okay, pretty hot over there is it? I'm still sunburned from Disneyland that I went to a week ago. <laughs> God, what a what a oh! I'm, I really feel for you. Says the <laughs> says the man who just came back from Hawaii five days ago. Yeah. Today we're joined by a really special guest. Um, we stoked to um, welcome onto the podcast uh, Colin from the brilliant Cream Corn in the Universe um, podcast, a you know, Twin Peaks podcast that looks at characters. And um, if you subscribe to our feed, you, pro- you might have heard uh, my conversation with Colin about Andy Brennan on his show um, as the last thing that we posted. How, how's things with you, Colin? How are you doing? Uh, they're going pretty good. Uh, just released my Laura Palmer Last Seven Days episode. Uh, awesome. I'm not sure when this will come out, but I do also have Major Briggs and Nadine Hurley firmly lined up as well. Like those Ooh. are all completely ready Ooh. to go. I just like to stick with the Monday at midnight uh, my time format, just so I can have some for people to look forward to week after week. Awesome, very cool. I'm I'm not I'm like I'm not like a lot of podcasters. I tend to um, get really impatient and don't have much patience for sort of recording stuff in advance and then scheduling it for release later on. So I tend to edit stuff as soon as it's recorded or close to it and then just get it out there as soon as I can. I'm, you know, I I hate the idea of sitting on something. I don't know. So I admire your, uh, your tenacity in, in, um, recording stuff ahead of time and, uh, and releasing it periodically. That's, uh, that's admirable. Oh, thank you. We're here to talk about two films. Vinny, what are we here to talk about? We're here to talk about a David Lynch film, of course, which would be Blue Velvet. Mm-hmm. But also, we got to mix in some anime because you know that's half the show. So we also got Perfect Blue. I don't know how we stitch these two together. I can't see any way they're related. No, it's not like there's a completely perfect uh, mashup title that we can uh, that we can call this episode or anything. Um, I know we're the guys who just yeah. put the two names of the shows in our title and didn't think anything else. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So yes, we are going to be covering David Lynch's Blue Velvet um, and also Satoshi Kon's masterpiece, Perfect Blue. Before we get into it, Colin, um, I know you're a big Twin Peaks fan. Um, how much anime have you seen in your life? Um, certainly not to the extent that you both have, but uh, you know, of course, <laughs> uh, I love the, stuff like not not the extent that Vinny has. Thank you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I know Craig's yeah. like, excuse oh. me. <laughs> excuse oh, me apologies. sir <laughs> no it's uh I, I find that there's i i only watch a few every now and then but it's uh you know i have one friend where he just seems to watch like everything under the sun but i'll mm-hmm. look through his collection like oh hey i can talk about the wind rises or i can talk about the garden of words uh, so a lot of stuff like satoshi kone hayao miyazaki and then a few miscellaneous ones that seem to grab my attention that's usually the way that i go these days sure 
You've never uh, never taken the plunge and delved into uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion. No, it's uh, I, it's uh, one of those things where I always wanted to, but uh, I, it's, it's sort of actually I did the same thing with Twin Peaks, where for years I'm like, oh, I'll get around to it, I'll get around to it. As people whose opinions I trust say that they like it and they think I would like it, it's just one of those like shows that I just happen to not watch. Like for example, like with Better Call Saul, I remember like, oh, I want to watch that when it you know when it initially came out, and now it's over and I still have yet to actually watch it. Oh. My yeah, God, I really man. drag my feet. It, it's 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 quite <laughs> it's quite remarkable how how much I drag my feet because I guess I, I think I was mentioned on my last episode. I was uh, someone described in 1990 Twin Peaks as a TV show for people that don't watch TV, and mm-hmm. I think I was like, oh okay, I guess maybe I fit the market for that for all the wrong reasons because I like if I binge watch a show, that's like an event. Uh, it's like you know I don't move on from one show or another. Just there's one that really strikes me, and then uh, then I just kind of pick and choose a little bit carefully. Nice. Yeah, no, the, the best quote about, one of the best quotes about Twin Peaks that I've seen is that, um, you know, Neon Genesis Evangelion is a, you know, is is about fighting robots as much as Twin Peaks is a detective show. <laughs> so um, that gives you some insight into the, into sort of the depths of, uh, of, of where that show goes. And um, it's worth your time, Colin. Like, I think, you know, if you've got, if you've got a break in your podcasting schedule or whatever, just um, chuck on the first few episodes of NGE and, uh, and try that. I think, I think it'd be worth your time. Yeah. Right now I'm starting to think of, uh, I'm going to try to do my episodes weekly till the end of the year. And I'm still mm-hmm. debating if I want to make it bi-weekly for a while or just take like a month, two month break. But uh, I do neon Genesis Evangelion is one of those shows that I have like high up on my list in terms of stuff to do during that time. Nice. Cool. Well, happy to bring you back on. Uh, and you know, if you, if you ever want to, um, you know, document your thoughts on a, on a podcast, happy to, happy to have you back. If you want to feel awesome. sane after watching and feel like, Oh, I have people who have also gone through the journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, There's that too. All right. Let's, let's jump ahead. Where should we start? Um, uh, which, which film do we want to start with? Let's I guess the we older could go one. with the yearly order. Yeah. Uh, start with uh, blue velvet. Cause there's okay. a little, as far, far, far I understand, uh, for Satoshi Kon, his influences were Hayao Miyazaki, uh, Terry Gilliam, and David Lynch. So I think ah, it's just kind of interesting to see okay. where where it starts off with Blue Velvet and what may or may not have crossed over with Perfect Blue. Sure. All right, let's let's dive in right there then. Um, I know Vinny, you've you watched this for the first time yesterday. Yep. Day before. <laughs> what's um, what's your history with Blue Velvet, Colin? Uh, well, actually, for the longest time, the only David Lynch movie I watched uh, was Eraserhead, which was way back in 2009. Wow. Okay. And then I managed to go like 10 years without watching anything Lynch related. He's just one of those guys where I always loved him in interviews and I just somehow never got around to watching his films. And then in throughout 2019 and uh, 2020, I started watching like more of his filmography, plus like the art life of uh, his his art documentary, and of course Twin Peaks as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, you know, when I look at uh, Lynch's filmography in Twin Peaks, I see a lot of like those like similar connections in that relatively short span. But yeah, so Blue Velvet, I believe, was the third Lynch movie I watched, which was uh, right behind Racehead, Firewalk with Me, and then Blue Velvet. Right. I'm, I'm going to bring back a segment that we've done before, Vinny. Um, I'm going to bring back the uh, the 30 second recap. And given that this is your first time watching it, Vinny, I'd like you to to recap in uh, as as rapid fire as possible. Uh, what is God the plot it. of right. Blue Velvet? Ready? Set. Okay, go. 
Blue Velvet <laughs> is a murder mystery that takes place in the small Americana town of Lumberton, USA. It is around uh, Jeffrey Beaumont as he comes back home to see his ailing father who has fallen ill and needs to help out with the family hardware store. But he stumbles upon a murder mystery and that t consumes his life, that consumes his love life, and ultimately is almost his downfall. But somehow he finds a way to get love at the end. And it's very sick and psycho and very lynch. And I like it. <laughs> nice. That's pretty Ooh. good. Uh, yeah, yeah, given that you just watched that yesterday, I would have thought you've had that rehearsed for a while. <laughs> no! Craig always does this to me. I always forget the segment until it happens. Like, uh, <laughs> get your thoughts quickly together. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was up all night practicing that. And I know. Yeah. So, what what was your what did you think overall, Vinny? David Lynch style. Ex expand on that. Elaborate on that. <laughs> what what so, did you think of the film overall? So. Knowing that, like, this is the earliest I've seen of his filmography after, you know, Mohan Drive, Firewalk With Me, mm -hmm. and Lost Highway. And it's like, I can see, like, the rhythm of, like, okay, set up, set up, like, the world, and then the mystery, and then, like, a sharp turn into other stuff. So I can recognize mm -hmm. those beats of it, but also it was nice to see something that wasn't straight up, like, okay, here's the complete overhaul of the shift, like a Lost Highway or Mahon Drive, where it's like, oh, sure. now it's time to re-catch up with everything in the status quo. So I really like mm. that aspect of it, where it's more traditional, like, okay, I start with this character, and I'm ending with this character. Sure, he's gone through a journey but it's the same exact person so that's yeah, what i liked right. i also like seeing the kyle and laura dern just chemistry at the beginning because they mm -hmm. have the best chemistry in the return so it's like just seeing like this is the first time them working together and just having that natural just set where it's like uh it just made me wish like dang it i wish there was a third season of twin peaks with them young and just working together like I wanted that. Yeah, that would be I guess great. on that topic, did you view... I mean, because I'm assuming you watched Part 18 before you watched Blue Velvet. Right. Do you view uh, Blue Velvet as almost like a spiritual prequel? Like, this very loosely could be the early days of Dale Cooper and Diane type of, type of dynamic? Absolutely, mm. but also, like, in that, like, deleted scene from, like, the missing pieces of, like, how uppy he is about just talking to her, even though Laura Dern's not in that room, just, like, the uppiness of, like, his intrigue, like, there's a mystery, and I'm into it, there's a mystery in this room, you've changed something, and I know something's changed in this room, so I feel like, yeah, it absolutely mm. is that, like, prequel to that dynamic. Yeah, I was gonna... Oh, very good. I was going to bring that up. I mean, it is natural. Twin Peaks came after this, um, and a lot of people have drawn the comparisons between Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks in terms of um, almost like Blue Velvet was a, like a trial run or, you know, a precursor to Twin Peaks. Did you, I mean, do you feel that the characters of Jeffrey Beaumont and Dale Cooper, I mean, obviously they're played by the same person. Do you, do you feel that there is much overlap between those two characters? I mean, just the hunger for mystery is the main thing mm -hmm. where it's like dale i mean dale's the guy who's like the town just got weirder but his devotion to the mystery never like wavered it was like no matter mm -hmm. what challenge came for dale cooper he was still all about laura at the end heck even when he had a chance to leave the mystery in the return he still mm -hmm. had to go back for laura it's just this devotion to the mystery and that's what he gets out of life just trying to solve the ultimate mystery mm hmm what about you, Colin? What do you think about um, Jeffrey Beaumont as a, a proto-Cooper 
So actually, I guess uh, before I get to Jeffrey Bowen, it's probably good to talk about Lumberton compared to Twin Peaks because mm. well, one, it's called mm -hmm. Lumberton, mm. and uh, of course, the, with Twin Peaks, there it's like a logging's like a big thing for them. Mm. But the other one is that you see, uh, oh, it's Arlene's the diner, and eat, it only shows the establishment shot twice, but you see a logging truck uh, behind it each time. Yeah, and I right. was like, oh, this is, and maybe it's just one of those things that just kind of retroactively fits in, but. It's just one of those things that where I kind of see those spiritual prequel connections even more with Blue Velvet every time I watch it. Yeah, but no, I, I would echo what Vinny said, is that there's that certain enthusiasm he has to solve it. He, Jeffrey Bowen's probably more of a Part 18 Richard, the, like a young Richard, than he would be a Dale Cooper, where, yeah, you know, he's not chipper about it, but there's just this very serious nature that, that he has. Uh, so that's uh, so I do see the connection, but, uh, you know, I, again, come back to Part 18 is that that's the episode where we see the most of Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern. Right. And uh, yeah, so right. that's, uh, so my primary uh, connections are through that more so than, you know, what we see in those uh, three seasons leading up to that. Mm. You know, I really like what you were saying there about, um, about Lumberton as kind of like a, you know, a template for Twin Peaks. And I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, even the, the fact that it's called Lumberton, you know, it's, you know, it's named after its primary industry, I guess. A lot of people have, um, you know, have sort of analyzed the, the opening to Blue Velvet, you know, and right. the, I feel like it's, it's absolutely just completely surface level film school 101 yeah. that, you know, you've got these Norman Rockwell sort of scenes. And then I love, I love the shot of the, um, the father hosing down the, the flower bed or whatever and then like the hose is kind of tightened around the the tap and then something happens to his heart and he you know collapses and then you know dives through the grass and you know oh, that's the cd underbelly it's it's such you know it's like you know it's entry-level film analysis basically <laughs> um yeah to, to be fair yeah. though i will say that i do generally agree with that sentiment but there's little things i pick up on each time that i feel like that it adds uh there's a little more to the dynamic like for example the night when uh, Frank Booth meets Jeffrey, and then he gets gut punched and uh, and attacked. Where mm -hmm. he wakes up, and it's like he's sitting in the mud, and they hear the sprinklers going off in a spot that's middle of nowhere. And mm -hmm. I kind of thought that might be a parallel mm -hmm. to his father's uh, journey, because that's a period where his father's in critical condition. Uh, Jeffrey is effectively in critical condition as well, and it's sort of that ambiguity of how you know can they both get out of this? Yeah. It's interesting, I'm just thinking about this now as well, is that, you know, with the father, you know, this is, it often strikes me as funny, but there's the scene where he's, you know, collapsed and the dog is kind of like jumping on him, trying to drink the water, but he's, you know, he's, he's really sort of manic about it. It's almost a parallel to how Frank was kind of all up in Jeffrey's face when he was attacking him and stuff and just, you know, has that sort of primal look about him. There, yeah. There's actually that scene with the uh, the first dream sequence where it shows his father in the hospital, his face is all stretched out, and mm -hmm. then it like has a hard cut to Frank Booth, where because I I think this movie is like there's like a shift of definitely power dynamics, but in like a dysfunctional, almost like family like type of thing. Where yeah. uh, I mean, we'll go to that like when when we, when we get to Dorothy Valens, but that's just something I've kind of picked up on uh, each time, and uh, even the days of Wrapped in Plastic, John Thorne did a, a great compare and contrast of. Jeffrey Beaumont with Dell Cooper, and that was a big part for that article. Mm. Mm. No, I have to. I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting. Where, where should we go to next with this? Um, keen to get your guys' thoughts on this. Um, I feel like, sorry, I'll back up a second. So, Blue Velvet was the first Lynch film that I saw. Mm. 
not knowing anything about the man as a as a filmmaker or anything i you know just picked it out of the video store one night and put it on it was at a time in my life where i was getting into film and becoming like a, a film guy and yeah i was blown away by it i the first time i saw it i did i did think it was kind of weird because it was unusual from what i'd seen before but base but compared to other other lynch films i feel like it's a lot more of a a straightforward narrative would you guys agree with that 100 i i would and I, I think it's also worth mentioning is that i view this as basically a blueprint of what his filmography would be like from that point on because you know mm. the race red it was a student film that he uh obviously that that's a great story in of itself but then he was a a director for hire for elephant man and dune and to mm-hmm. be fair he did a tremendous job with elephant man and mel brooks uh he he trusted him in, to the utmost ability that he'd make a great film but yeah. then dune came out and the thing is that he spent years plugging on a movie that he had no final cut yeah and I think that's right. what prompted him because it was after that movie he told dino de laurentiis because dino de laurentiis funded both dune and this movie and blue velvet right he said i want to do another movie but only if i have creative control mm-hmm. and the thing with blue velvet is that he's had this in his head since at least the early days of Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. So you think of like what he was fine tuning how he views like the color blue, his use of color, electricity, uh, the dynamics that he's really into. And uh, a lot of that carries over, even if it's relatively linear in this movie, that you can see there's a core aspect uh, of how, how he views his uh, archetypes, if you will. Yeah, for sure. I feel like Blue Velvet might be, if someone who had no knowledge of David Lynch sort of came to me and said, you know, what? I've heard this name, David Lynch, you know, what's a good film to sort of, you know, that I could check out? Part of me wants to recommend this. <laughs> Part of me wants right. to recommend Blue Velvet because, you know, it is, I guess there's less abstraction. There's less kind of like, you know, overtly surreal stuff. Like it's not like Lost Highway where, um, you know, the, the entire narrative shifts halfway through. It's not like Mulholland Drive where you know you're scratching your head through the the final act of that film it is more straightforward but part of me doesn't want to recommend it because it might be one of the darkest david lynch films in terms of how the characters are treated especially the female characters are treated you know what what, what's your sense of that so not sure if this is worth mentioning is that uh the first movie i watched was a racer head and uh, (laughs) that was a period where i was really into indie movies but i was not really into that level of art house type of films and right. I was actually, I mentioned this in my Laura Palmer episode that the first time I watched Racerhead, I had a bunch of friends that were leering at me, just like, oh, what's Colin going to say? What's Colin going to say? And it's a really <laughs> weird dynamic to watch that movie. But then uh, the next movie I watched is Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. And that is, to me, I, I think of all the movies, not just in Lynch's filmography, but in all films, that some that, rap, that embodies like a true evil, I feel like that's the mm. movie for me. So when I got to Blue Velvet, I actually thought it was pretty mild by comparison. It's sort of like, you know, some like Midnight Cowboy where you watch that movie in like the late 60s. That was a very like intense and irreverent sure, film. Sure, yeah. But, it, you know, as time's gone on, we've seen other films that have, uh, you know, tried to up the ante or has have its own take on just this intense visceral violence. Yeah. So, uh, so my, my mainstay is more so the character archetypes and... A lot of the violence is uh, a bit secondary, for lack of a better term. It's more of sure. how how Dennis Hopper. It's more of like his reactions and how other people react to him that I have this more upset feeling by. What about you, Vinny? What did um? What was your take on the? I guess the the more extreme aspects of Blue Velvet. It was very intense, but also like just the framing of it, like just the POV of like a closet 
and just looking through and I just added the intensity because I'm sitting there like, okay, so is somehow Frank going to like look into the closet because that's because clearly like he wasn't good at hiding the closet since Dorothy found him just by the littlest of noise. She was ready to just grab the knife and just get some out of the closet. But just the escalation of like the weirdness into the violence just seeing this man pull out a breathing apparatus out of his pocket to take a hit and then just assault a woman was like oh jesus like i wasn't ready for anything in this movie like this happens every time colin where i think i know what's gonna happen (laughs) to david lynch thing and then the shit happens like oh why why do i ever make this false sense of security I think, oh, I've seen <laughs> yeah. part eight. I know what this man can do in, to, on screen. No, you idiot. Why would you <laughs> yeah. ever think that? that? <laughs> that's the thing is that with Lynch, there's something there's something about his movies, because I don't really watch them on too frequent of a basis, but there's something about no matter how many times you watch them, there's still that visceral terror that you feel one way or another. Mm, right. Like, for example, uh, with this movie, and I know you just said you watched it for your first time last night, but for me, I've watched it at least you know, close to 10 times at this point. And the thing is that I always feel this visceral intensity whenever uh, Jeffrey's like in that closet or there's mm-hmm. like stakes that are like being raised because there's there's just some that uh, that Lynch understands the language beyond cinema. He knows something just farther beyond that yeah. and knows how to make you just feel this in, in a way where regardless if it's esoteric or linear. Yeah, right. Uh, absolutely agree. I think that's the thing. And I think that's why, you know, other filmmakers they try and do similar things and you know that you know a film reviewer might say that it's lynchian but i think right. the fact that that lynchian has become you know a, a descriptor of of a certain style which you can't really articulate in other words i think that just sort of speaks to the 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 level that lynch is operating at but like also the the mainstream like reverse of this i think recently is like wandavision I heard so much mm. that it's Lynchian and it's Blue Velvet. And seeing Blue Velvet, no. <laughs> yeah. The, the I mean, only thing yeah. I could feasibly think of is that 50s type of style town. Yeah. But that's mm-hmm. kind of where the that's where the comparisons end, uh, for me at least. Yeah, I think, I think so. Let's talk about the character of Frank Booth, because I think he... Because uh, I think his first appearance and, you know, when, when he appears, the film kind of takes a, a lot darker of a turn. You know, it's 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 sort of a, you know, it's a quirky, compelling mystery up until, you know, Jeffrey's in the closet and he sees Frank Booth come in and, and do what he does. Well, how, how do you guys feel about Frank as a character and I guess Dennis Hopper's portrayal? What do you, what do you reckon, Vinny? Uh, it, it's almost like a proto Mr. C, just like. What is, Mm. is there anything to redeem this man for? Because every action I see of him just makes me loathe him more and more. There's not an instance where I'm like, okay, that was good. That was good. I like that. Just this pure evilness. Like, I could believe that there is a black Bob ball inside Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And he's, um, the way he differs from Mr. C is that, um, you know, he just seems a lot more unpredictable and unhinged. Mm, right. You know, Mr. C kind of, you know, he's he's intimidating and he's embodies evil in a lot of ways, but most of the, for the most part has this really kind of controlled, quiet, sinister sense about him. Frank Booth just can explode into a rage mm. at any opportunity. And I think the one character who have a sway over him is um God, what is his name? Ben, the guy yeah, from yeah. Quantum Leap, who 
lip syncs into a torch <laughs> to love. <laughs> Which, by the way, do you know that that was actually completely unplanned? There was just one of those sound lights mm. that was just sitting there, and you just thought, oh, this seems like it would be right. Uh, it's one of the many happy accents that Lynch just thinks, oh, let's just go with it. Yeah, no, I can totally imagine that happening. Yeah. yeah. What, what do you think about Frank Booth, Colin? Uh, well, I guess the uh, it's probably good to bring up Dennis Hopper first, because mm. did, I don't know if you uh, both know this, but Robert Loggia, who uh, played Dick Laurent in Lost Highway, he actually was first lined up to play Frank Booth. Oh, is that right? And, uh, yeah, and th- there's a thing where, uh, of course, he would have been great in it. Right. And uh, the thing, and the reason why he ended up getting Dick Laurent later on is because uh, there, at a certain point, he was waiting for casting for so long that he lost his lid on Lynch. Like, he stormed past the casting director and just verbally assaulted him. <laughs> and Lynch just thought, that guy, like, when he did Lost Highways, like, that guy is perfect for Dick Laurent. Awesome. But the thing that, that, makes a, that makes Dennis Hopper perfect is that he was in a really bad spot where he had serious drinking problems. Uh, mm-hmm. He was drinking like a 24 pack a day and like a sure. bottle, bottle of like whiskey. And he, he was one of those people that thought he was just fine work. So he just wasn't like, you know, a bomb of sorts, but right. he got like a very mean and very abrasive. And this is his second movie when he was starting to get clean. And mm-hmm. uh, what he said to Lynch is that he said, no one else can play Frank Booth because I am Frank Booth, which <laughs> is like the most terrifying thing you could sell someone on. But no one else could play that role. Like Robert Loggia would have been a good in that role, and he would have been memorable. But uh, there's Dennis Hopper is like the one who steals the show for me. Uh, but I think for me, the, the if we're gonna go with the character Frank Booth specifically, I even though he has this unstoppable chaotic evil aspect to him, the scene that unsells me the most is actually when Jeffrey sees him at the Slow Club, and he's actually crying to the song Blue Velvet because there's like this tiny bit of humanity in him. And it actually makes it even worse that he is what he is in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of clutching that little that little scrap of um, of blue velvet that he cut from yeah. Dorothy's robe at that point yeah. as well, isn't he? And one of the things that uh, I think a testament to how terrifying Frank Booth is, and I didn't really think of it until I watched it today, but there's that part where she's singing blue velvet, and then you see her attention diverts, and she has this like kind of terrified look on her face. Like, even on stage, she just seems, like, very deeply unsettled by his presence. And, uh, again, it kind of reaffirms the idea that even when he's out in public and he's like, has that vulnerability, that there's something still inherently terrifying about him. Yeah, and I think that speaks to his unpredictable nature, you know, you know he's in this you know he's in this relatively vulnerable state at this point but yeah you know, we know from what we've seen that anything could sort of you know trip that and um you know set him over the edge now you guys are both uh, psychoanalysts i know so um let's let's speculate wildly what's um what do you reckon happened in in frank booth's past to make him that way i think his mom either loved him too little or loved him too much he's got mom issues just a bit <laughs> safe to say that's actually not a bad point because uh there's uh, it's like i was mentioned before there's those uh dysfunctional family dynamics that go mm-hmm. on like for example the first time we see him uh he says uh you know it's daddy and then he does the whole calling her mommy and then he shifts it back basically so yeah. you actually that's actually not a bad point at all because i i guess my answer is a little more unceremonious because i kind of took is that he just like is a, just a legit psychopath where he was just born without any empathy. Maybe the tiniest bit, like maybe music kind of sets it off a little bit, but mm. that's the only thing that everything else, he just has no empathy, uh, can't feel it. Uh, just not that he can't, that he won't type of person. Right. Let's, um, let's talk about the music for a second. Obviously blue velvet, um, plays a, plays a big role. The song in this, in this, uh, in this film. Um, 
what do you reckon the better song is? Blue Velvet or um, Roy Orbison's In Dreams? If we're going with uh, if we're going with the Isabella Rossellini rendition with uh, Roy Orbison's In Dreams, then it's cutting close. But if we're going with the original Blue Velvet with In Dreams, then he, Roy Orbison wins out for me. Uh, it's not yeah, even just the uh, scene with uh, with Ben lip singing it. It's just like there's just something about that song because David Lynch. It was before or during when he was filming. He heard the song on the radio and said, that song needs to be in the movie. I don't mm-hmm. care how we are putting that in the movie. So I think that despite the fact that Blue Velvet is such like a central part naturally to the movie, that there's something about David Lynch's insistence that just makes uh, makes Sandman just, uh, or no, sorry, it makes In Dreams just resonate so much more for me. Absolutely. And I think um, I read somewhere there was a bit of... Um... A bit of fuckery with uh with with how they sort of acquired the rights to that song and roy orbison didn't know that the song was in the movie until he saw it at a cinema or something oh he, he actually he hated it the first time and uh, right. i don't know what it was um because i think was he a, i don't want to say he was a born again christian but there's a period where he went to go see it a second time and he had this complete reevaluation. Mm-hmm. and when he found out that david lynch was also into transcendental meditation that that actually just completely buried the hatchet with the two of them. Oh, that's sweet. No, the candy-colored clown himself. What else can we say about Blue Velvet? Well, I guess the because uh, this this might be kind of where the crossover can occur with Perfect Blue, but uh, mm. the character of uh, Dorothy Valens, because mm. uh, I, I mean, I guess that this is like a kind of soft, like you know, or more of a preemptive like crossover of what these two movies kind of coincide with is that. It's like uh, Inland Empire's uh, tagline, A Woman in Trouble. And mm-hmm. I feel like that really permeates with the character of Dorothy Valens and uh, Mima in Perfect Blue. Yeah, I think we'll, we'll definitely, let's, let's pick that up again when we talk about Perfect Blue. How do you reckon Dorothy Valens compares to other female characters that we've seen in Lynch works? So the likes of Laura Palmer or... Um... Or um, Ellis slash Renee from from Lost Highway. It's I, I would it's sort of like oh sorry Vinny you can you can go on. <laughs> I was gonna say it's like just it's the idea of like the stage like I need to be I need to keep up appearances for the stage like with Laura mm-hmm. Palmer like she was the celebrity of the town she was the queen she that mm-hmm. perfect picture in that display case you know just like who could ever believe that this girl was out partying doing god knows what with as many people as she could it was like the stage is what i am this is what i need to present myself to the world because the truth is so dark i never want to associate with it so it's that idea of just you need to be stage ready because it's escapism for you you can't just live in your life because your life is just utter pieces for you it's a great great observation great observation thank you no no it's uh for me i look at it more so because uh early on in david lynch's life it uh it's like that it's like the scene when she's battered and naked he actually Mm -hmm. experienced something very similar when he was younger uh i forget how old he was but him and his brother were out playing and a naked battered woman came out and his brother started instinctively crying and then uh david lynch was like strangely entranced by it and again, it comes back to the idea that I view this movie as the blueprint for Lynch's filmography. Is that that I feel like that was something that deeply stuck with him, and mm-hmm. uh, that, that and that's what really led to the framework of Dorothy Valens in particular. Uh, as for comparing uh, to the other other women in in his filmography, I don't think I could uh, could do the compa- anything better than your comparison of Laura. Uh, but uh, I guess I also think of the contrast of Dorothy to Sandy. 
because mm. uh, Lynch has a very like strong thing for blondes and brunettes, and there's always like a yeah. contrast of sorts with them. Like Mulholland Drive being probably a prime example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I absolutely. also think of like the duality that it represents of what Dorothy represents to Jeffrey compared to what Sandy represents, because he never wants these two lives to ever intersect. And no. uh, and so I, so yeah, I just think that uh, Sandy has that young purity, and then Dorothy just has this like where she feels irreversibly damaged. And uh, you see these, they're definitely dynamics that uh, that Lynch definitely plays out through his filmography one way or another. But yeah, because that's another one is that I think of the duality and how prominent that is. Uh, very subtle, but still prominent in this movie. And um, you can kind of tell in that scene where Dorothy is there and she's naked and, you know, he's clinging to Jeffrey. You can, you can tell that he's kind of like trying to, he's thinking like, oh God, don't say anything about our our relationship don't say anything don't say anything and he's so uncomfortable about it because you know sandy's standing right there um yeah another don't say anything another... creepy like his disease is in me oh you did say it well <laughs> god speaking of creepy lines there's a line that i love in blue velvet where um sandy sort of says to jeffrey you know i i, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert <laughs> his response is so funny to me like and yeah what, what how does he respond he just kind of says like you know well he gives a sly look he's like well that's for me to know and you to find out baby <laughs> it's 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 There's so funny about the, it's definitely the uh, it's definitely the facial expression Kyle McLaughlin has that really sells it for me yeah it, it just has that like it has that like the like, subtly snarky grin of like yeah she caught me and i need to play it off i sort of read it as you know he's trying to be kind of you know like flirty or like oh yeah. hey hey you know kind of thing but it's just like you know he's just he's just an idiot reminds me of um <laughs> personal anecdote time Ooh, i love these when when i was uh when i was about 17 18 um i was working in a shop a supermarket and um there was this yeah you know one of the hot girls from school was um you know came in and you know bought some things <laughs> she was we used to have this energy drink called black stallion and she was wearing a black stallion t-shirt um for some reason you know i, I can't remember what i said but i was just i think i said something like oh do you do you drink that shit like you know is it any good and she's like oh no i've only got the i've only got the t-shirt because i because i ride like a stallion like this and i was just sort of and I was such a dumbass. I was. I just sort of said, "I said, oh, a black stallion," and I was like, and then she sort of gave me this weird look and you know left. And like later that night, I was just like, "Fuck! What the hell did I say that? That was so dumb." Yeah, that didn't even come under or seem like a good idea at the time. I no, really exactly. Follow up with that. No, it was just like, uh, uh, yeah. So that's um, yeah, that's that's what a dumbass I was. Back in the day. Anyway, um. So it just it just it kind of reminded me of that for some reason. Oh, that line is great, but also just just Frank's line where he's asked like, "Hey, do you want me to pour the beer?" He's like, "No, I want you to fuck it." <laughs> Those lines just had me dying. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, very funny lines. <laughs> but but also I wanted to like when he when Jeff was telling him his drink of choice and he's like Heineken and when he burst out like Heineken fuck that shit do you guys know a song that samples that exact audio is there no because I'm sure there's uh, more than a few out there I'm sure there's one. I I did find out today that there's a song I really like by the band Ministry called Jesus Built My Hot Rod which samples um I think it samples Frank saying let's hit the fucking road um <laughs> awesome song 
But um, no, I'm not aware of any. I'm sure that there is one, at least. Because I have a song I have listened to for like over a decade at this point. It's Green Day covered uh, My Generation by The Who. It was on their album really? Kerplunked. And there's there's a part where like it's a guitar solo. Then it just cuts that audio. Heineken, fuck that shit. I never knew awesome. where it was from. And when I heard oh, it in amazing. this movie, I'm like, it's Green Day likes David Lynch. Mwah, perfect. <laughs> I love that. It's awesome. <laughs> Are you a beer drinker, Colin? Uh, admittedly, I haven't been able to drink in years, but uh, it's not yeah. its not anything like a you know previous addiction. It's just sort of like, it's just kind of like past my prime sort of yeah. thing. No, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I very rarely drink. I'm curious to know, though, what, what kind of reputation does Pabst Blue Ribbon have in the States? Because my understanding oh, is it's bad. It's, is it... it's basically just like water. Uh, it's uh, I, I mean, to put it mildly, it, it's like, I don't know if it's uh, just basically if you're under eight, it's I don't want to say it's Keystone Light. It's like premium Keystone Light for us, uh, where it's like it's not it's not a good taste, but it has this weird dedicated following. I would say. Yeah, because my understanding was that it was either a redneck beer or like a, a hipster beer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, it's it's like that weird crossover of like the the fringes of both groups, and there's that crossover of people who buy Paps Blue Ribbon. But the real shocker is that it's actually a lot bigger than you think. It's a lot bigger, like in terms of the, like, like in, in terms, terms of, of how popular it was. Very vocal uh, about it, yeah. Are, are I, I about like, like this, the size of the can or something? <laughs> I feel like it's a very negative connotation, but like the it's like the same like I don't know like handful of people keep buying it, so it's always just thriving. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Vinny's a big fan by by the sounds of things. What's what's your opinion oh. of Peps? I've never had it. I've only seen wrestlers yeah. sponsored by it. That's the only because I'm a huge wrestling <laughs> fan. I see a lot of like indie wrestlers like sponsored by it. So they're like in the in the ring like doing their thing. Then they have a spot where they grab a, a beer can a can of it and just whoop, 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 psh, knock it over the other guy's head like sponsored by Paps. <laughs> it's really funny. Make, it makes me laugh too when um when Jeffrey's you know snooping around in Dorothy's apartment and. You know, Sandy's honking the horn four times, and he, he's too busy taking a leak. It's just like oh, Heineken. <laughs> it's up. so funny, but also, can we talk about like it's like just the reusing of names? Because we got Jeffries, we got Gordon, and I'm like, you are yeah. like the true Gordon. You're not the Gordon I love from Lynch. Get out of here. Yeah. You're just a, a yellow suit man. Which also, have you guys ever seen a person actually wear like a yellow blazer in real life? Because I never have. It's always in fiction. Yeah, it's always in fiction from what I can think of as well. Uh, there was a dude I know. He used to wear this yellow hat. And he had a um, he had a pet monkey. And the monkey was very, very curious. <laughs> um, true story. I did when I was... When I was 18, I got invited to a um, a prom, I guess you'd call it, and um, I spent the, the most important, the most expensive piece of clothing that I've ever bought was a bright yellow, like um, like bulldozer yellow polyester shirt, which I wore with a bright blue tie. Why? Um, Why did you but, choose that? Because it was, I was, I'm assuming the mid 2000s, and that was in vogue. Um, it was. Or, it was or actually, what year was this? It was the early 2000s, and I was a fucking idiot, was the explanation <laughs> for that. It cost me $90, and it was like an authentic polyester yellow shirt from the, you know, from the 70s. It was, it was horrible. <laughs> it cost How me long did you keep the... that? 
I kept it for a while, actually. Yeah, you know, for quite a while. And um, yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was, it was like, like offensively bright. <laughs> That's the thing is that uh, men's styles in the early 2000s, for how good it was for women in the early 2000s, it was equally terrible for men. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There, there's like this really weird counterbalance where it just, no matter, like men's styles just like aged like milk uh, from like 2000 <laughs> to 2004, 2005. Yeah. Did you wear a yeah. trucker hat with the shirt and uh, like Ed Hardy stuff with it? <laughs> Didn't wear Ed Hardy. I, I definitely, my wallet may have had a chain on it at some point. <laughs> oh, I had a chain too. Oh, okay. That, that was the 2000s. So that was a, that was unfortunately more socially acceptable than we'd like to remember. Speaking of things I'd like to remember, um, Sorry, I thought I had a more clever uh, segue oh, there. Oh, come on. <laughs> Turns Greg, out I didn't. Uh, I just want to spotlight a young Laura Dern. <laughs> She's great. Like, you had it at such she a young good. age, Laura Dern. How, like, it's unfair. How are you so talented and you've sustained it all this time? I, ha- I had to look up how old Laura Dern was in this because I, th- um, I thought she, she, was like she 18, must have been 19? very young. I heard somewhere that she was like in her early mid twenties when she was in Jurassic Park, and yeah, she was like twenty seven, I believe, when that was released. Yeah, uh, yeah, she has that very mature looking face where I feel like mm-hmm. she's been like, she, she, I feel like she's been like twenty eight to like forty two her whole life. Uh, yeah. and I mean that in the best way possible. Absolutely. Uh, where it's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because because I, I think of like for me what I looked like at twenty seven, I was like, man, I looked like a kid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, she's still she's still she's still got a great thing going for her to this day. So I yeah, mean, my hats off to her. Absolutely. Um, this is gonna be this is gonna sound really bad, but there's one bit of acting that she does which makes me laugh <laughs> every time, and it's 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 so bad, and it's because it's so exaggerated, and you can tell that she probably started this, you know, really sort of you know a lot more toned down, and Lynch was pushing her and pushing her and pushing her. It's a scene where that we spoke on earlier when um, Dorothy reveals that, you know, her and Jeffrey have been a thing and she just like her mouth just kind of contorts into this clown face. I knew you were going to bring that scene yeah, up. Yeah. The moment we said there's one scene, I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm just going to let him say yeah. his thing. But I know where this is going. Uh, yeah. The first time I watched this was on VHS. Um, the second time I watched this was not long afterwards, actually. They had a, this boutique theater in Auckland had a, like a, a retrospective screening and, um, I went and saw it with an audience and it was wild to me how funny this film was with an audience. Like people Mm. were cracking up, you know, you're watching it alone and you know, it is dark and there's, you know, there's horrible shit that's happening, but some, but some parts of it are just so overblown and so exaggerated that it is farcical and it is comical. Yeah. And then that was definitely one that, you know, that got a good, (laughs) good response from the audience. Sure. I could I couldn't help but laugh at the entire time when Frank is just beating the crap out of Jeff. There's just that woman just dancing on top yeah. of the car. It yeah, is yeah. insane. And I couldn't help but laugh so much at that. Just she's just into it, just grooving along while this man is putting on lipstick, kissing another man, and then beating that man. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is the incongruous thing that sort of defines lynch and you know lynchian as a style is just that sort of incongruity between you know it's just so out of place i think my favorite in terms of uh i guess subtle humor is that 
Uh, Jack Nance is, of course, in it. He's like, yes. Paul. And he uh, has to reiterate this at least a one or two more times. Yep. Jack Nance just has this quality. And I don't do this because he shows up way too much in Twin Peaks. But every time I watch any of Lynch's films, barring a race head, I just do like a, hey, it's Jack Nance. Because he just has that presence that just like makes you feel better. He's definitely a, he's a that guy. Yeah. And he's he's very cool. What did you think of Jack Nance's appearance? Because I know you're a big Pete fan, Vinny. Oh, I love it. Uh, if I could bring back a dead celebrity, it'd be Jack Dance. I don't care about anyone else. He's just so wholesome. It is, it is that guy. And I love that he showed up at the end. <laughs> hey, Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Do you do you recognize the other the other one of um, Frank's cronies, the guy with sort of like the 80s hairstyle and the silk I did skinny oh, guy? Brad Dorf, probably. Brad Dorf, um, yeah. Do you yeah, know who that, yeah, do you know who that is, Vinny? Brad Dorf my head. is the voice... Of Chucky. Oh, that dude! From, That's awesome. Yeah, he also he was in um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as well. It was a very early role for him. And I think he did he win an Oscar for that. He might have been nominated at least. He was nominated. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. He uh, he did that, and then he did the Elephant Man with uh, Naturally with Lynch, and I think he was also in Dune as well. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I've only watched Dune like maybe two times, so I can't really mm-hmm. pinpoint where he was in that. But that was definitely him with the longer hair and blue velvet. Yeah. All right, any final thoughts on Blue Velvet before we, uh, before we transition? Just a small little thing I caught on where mm. it was after the murder of Frank and then like just everyone like getting back together. There's that one shot of just the light bulb just cutting out. I'm like, he has to do the electric- electricity thing <laughs> yep. every- and everything, doesn't he? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's it's like I was saying before is that uh, is that like how I view this as a blueprint where the electricity that's really the one scene, but you can tell that's something that's been stuck in his mind for some time, and that's mm-hmm. something that he would like just you know expand way further on as time would progress. Mm-hmm. All right, let's um, let's move on to Perfect Blue. So she wore perfect blue velvet. Um, Ooh. Colin, I'm going to put you on the spot here, dude. And um, my apologies in advance. <laughs> I'd like That's you. Okay. I, I, I knew once once I knew Vinny had to do it, <laughs> I kind of knew that it was going to be my trajectory. I, I thought maybe there was like I, a 10% I, chance it might shift back to him anyways, but I was braced for impact for no. at least the last half hour. I can, I can see that you're notably sweating um, on the other side of that Zoom uh, window. Oh, actually, this whole I, time, I, so. a bit of a side note, I actually do this thing where I turn off the AC, um, you know, because I never like, because I have a fan like literally right next to my computer. <laughs> mm. So that's the real, because there's times where it's like when I've interviewed like Amy Shields or Zoe McClain, I was like, I look at the videos like, I look terrible. I can't <laughs> believe I look like this in front of people. <laughs> And the things that it, it's sweltering where I live, it, it gets super hot no matter what time it is. Uh, even in the yeah, heat, because right. it, it just it just insulates. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, I, so it's uh, this sweating thing. It's uh, it's like <laughs> it's like the Super Mario Brothers movie where you see those natural beads of sweat. And that's not movie magic. That's like actually like no one has that AC. <laughs> the other um, the other Dennis Hopper masterpiece. Yes. Um, <laughs> yep. He was totally channeling Frank I, I, in that I, though, wasn't he? He seriously was. Oh, he was. <laughs> Well, he was channeling Frank for the wrong reasons. He was just legit angry being on that movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I guess before you get into Perfect Blue, it, a bit of a side note, I feel like it's well documented that Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo just drank their way throughout that movie. Yeah. Yep. And I, I think that if Dennis Hopper didn't get through his uh, alcohol addiction, he probably would have been on the same boat because Absolutely. no one was happy being on that. But anyways, enough enough delays. Um, yeah, let's guess do it. All right. 30 seconds. Uh, do your best to yeah recap 
this <laughs> almost impenetrable film. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm so going to count you I, down. Three, right. two, one, and go. So Mima is a former pop star from the band Cham, and she makes her transition into uh, being an actress because that's a more profitable trajectory for her. But as that goes on, that there's uh, there's at least one stalker who's not quite happy with it. And uh, as the as she does double bind, the the vision of uh, reality and dream just starts to blur more and more to the into the point of it being oblivion. And even when you get to the very end, it just raises more questions than answers. Uh, perfect. Well, do I need to make any more? No, that's perfect. I think okay. that was, I was very well that. done. I wasn't sure very if it needed well to be done. very. Oh, very good. No, no, fantastic stuff, Colin. That was that was great. Um, and we'll 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 get into this a little bit. Um, Vinny, what's your history with this film? So, like many an anime fan, I've watched like countless things. So this was probably during like me just binge watching a lot of anime on my laptop in high school in the middle of the night. So I I remember. It's funny, like, during that time, I remember I watched a lot of anime. I couldn't tell you a lot about it. I just remembered, oh, I really liked that. So, re-watching, I'm like, how how did I watch this in the middle of the night and just calmly go back to sleep? Because, my god, this movie just... The idea that this is Satoshi Kon's directorial debut for a movie is like, this has yeah. to be one of the best first films for any director ever. Because this sticks with yeah. me. I can't stop thinking about it. Just the imagery, the music. This man is one of the best directors of all time, and he came out with an instant classic. Yeah. Actually, Vinny, I have one question. Because, um, yeah, you're way more well versed in anime than I am. Did you happen to read, uh, I believe, Opus before, uh, before Perfect Blue? No, I read uh, it since. Because I know that he was. Okay, because I, 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 I've read Opus, and you can kind of see the. Just the, just the, maybe not the inspiration, but just kind of the mindscape of him mm -hmm. and how he could carry that over so perfectly for a directorial debut. At least, at least that was my takeaway when I read Opus. Um, I didn't know that Opus existed until um, I looked it up yesterday, so I'm gonna have to find that. Um, yeah, you need to read maybe. it, Craig, because you will dig it so much. <laughs> awesome. This is for anyone who's who's unfamiliar. This is um, Satoshi Kon's what manga that he. Yeah, made? is that what it was? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. He even had a bit of an epilogue slash coda about how he couldn't continue out the story because he had to work on Perfect Blue. Yeah, so right. this was like legitimately the last project he did before he uh, dived into filmmaking. Nice, cool. So was that your kind of introduction to it, Colin? You you read the manga first and then. I, well, this actually, out, I, how did that happen? I, I, I ended up reading the manga afterwards. Uh, I first watched Perfect Blue in 2015, and it was really hard to find at that time. Yeah. I think yeah. a lot of people forget that it wasn't until either the 20th or 20th. Well, actually, this would be the 25th anniversary, so it was indeed the 20th, where now it's readily available on Blu ray and digital. Yeah. It was super hard to find for the longest time. Like, yeah. it was kind of produced in mass in, uh, in, on VHS. And it had a very substandard, to say the best, DVD release that was hard mm. and hard to find. Yeah. So I ended up finding it. There was a period on YouTube, like, there would just be full anime films just yep. readily available in 2015. And uh, that, I was like, oh, this one doesn't have a giant lens flare on it. I can watch this before it's taken down. And that was my first four-way into Perfect Blue. And, uh, oh. and to be fair, it was a very good quality. It was, uh, it, luckily, this person was nice enough to have an HD. Oh, so, and also, it was the Japanese version as well. So nice. it really helped. Oh, um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think I definitely watched the English version at one point, and it does not hold up. Right, uh, no. Yeah, they, 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 
there's a lot of anime where, uh, or at least when I watch foreign, you know, any foreign animated movies, I pick the native language because for every Studio Ghibli film, you get a lot of bad stuff. And even Studio yeah. Ghibli, like Rave of the Fireflies, I've heard that so bad with its uh, with its English uh, English translation that you're better off not watching it. Wow. And okay. uh, and to be fair, I remember the English version being for Purple Blue being okay, but Mister Me Mania that was. That was like egregiously bad. It was like yeah. unintentionally yeah. funny at a time when it should not <laughs> yeah. be. And, and this isn't like Blue Velvet, where you can laugh at it because Lynch is kind of kind of poking at it. This, is just, this yeah. is just a oversight from yeah. the uh, translators. Yeah, I I agree. I watched this film around the, probably around the same time as I watched Blue Velvet, but I didn't remember a thing about it. Like not a thing. Like I watched it on VHS one night and. Yeah, I didn't remember a damn thing about it. And then I rewatched it again last night. I had to, you know, find a, a dodgy stream of it because it's, you know, in New Zealand, it's, you know, it's a lot harder to find stuff um, than it is in other places in the world. And it was the English dubbed version and it was fine. But I totally agree with you, Colin, that scene with the with the stalker um, where he finally talks was just like, what is this voice? It sounds like a fucking Muppet or something. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's yeah, crazy. So, so apart from that scene, I've kind of oppressed everything else uh, <laughs> that I feasibly could from that English version. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, but like, you know, of course, putting aside anything about the translation, this is just, it's such a hard movie you know to tap into because, mm. you know, from beginning to end, it's incredibly subversive. Because I think of like the Powertron part, like you can kind of guess that's not going to be like a movie within a movie, or that what that's what this movie's about. Mm -hmm. But it does kind of set the precedent that there there's always going to be a shift in tone and a shift of what you think the movie's going to really be about. That's I, I love that. I love that. I mean, when I started watching the film, and you know, there's the Power Ranger type people on screen. I'm just <laughs> like, God, did I pick the right movie? And then it <laughs> sort of you know, and then it became apparent what it was. But there's a few points in the film where something's happening and you think it's a scene that's happening to Mima in her real life or whatever. And then it re is revealed that it's, you know, she's shooting a scene, the scene where she's walking down the road and the guy comes up to me. He's like, Oh, Hey, have you ever considered doing any modeling or whatever? And, yeah. and I remember, th I remember watching it and I was thinking like, wouldn't she be more recognizable than this? Or, you know, or, you know, why, why is she, you know, why wouldn't she say, oh, well, actually, I'm an actor or whatever. And then, it, you know, it gets revealed that she's shooting a scene. I'm like, oh, okay, makes sense. Not sure if this is worth mentioning. I guess this is more so about actors kind of like on an international level. Is I think of years ago, Dan Radcliffe, when he was at the prime of being in Harry Potter, he actually mm. talked about how he could go out in public and no one would ever bug him. Like, uh, you know, never even gawking at him. And I think that definitely in the U.S., that is, you know, that, that is something that can't really be done. There's there's a reason why celebrities are just, like, all confined to, like, these, like, massive mansions. Yeah. But I know at an international level, it's a little bit different. And mm. I feel like I understand enough about Japanese culture, but I don't really know how they view, uh, you know, any, any like, famous, like, musicians or actors. So I can't confirm or deny, but I kind of just accepted that part on a whim. Mm. And it's, it's interesting. And I mean, I feel like when she was in Cham... It, it, it didn't strike me as a band that was like, you know, huge. Like they weren't like, God, I don't even know what the big J-pop bands are these days. But, um, you know, they, they weren't a massive band. They were doing okay. And they had, I mean, even like the size of the audience in their concert was not massive. Right. You know, it was a fairly small crowd. Yeah, the, the thing that I really stood out to me yesterday is that uh, while I was watching it, I started thinking about how just weird it is that it's like, basically a bunch of mid-30s men onward. Yes. Like, th this should be a band that should be, like, for, like, 
middle schoolers and under. Yeah. And it's basically just a bunch of guys that are just kind of like uh, talking about like this petty gossip. And this is something that permeates throughout the whole yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, last night when I was watching, I thought, wow, this is a much bigger thing. And also kind of more prominent now than it was in 1997. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, I don't know what it was like, uh, you know, you know, in Japan at that time. But I feel like either Satoshi Kon, either he saw this coming a mile away, or mm. he just saw this like in certain fandoms, for lack of a better term. Because mm. these guys are really like the neckbeards of the '90s, like before yep. before neckbeards were really a thing. Just yeah, uh, you know, it's like these guys. Because the thing is that Mima on Mima's room, they talk about how she just celebrated her 21st birthday. And uh, for me, it's like I think of at my age now. I'm like, oh wow, I guess 21 is really young. And you think of like yeah. how much older those guys are. Yeah, uh, I know I'm really harping on this, but there's really something about I didn't really think of how prominent the transition is was for her being a singer to an actress because mm. in it they do talk about how it's not profitable line of work where she's mm. really better off. They they never say that these are bad roles, but they're kind of like middle tier at best and kind of yeah. barrel at worst yeah they sort of bring up like um you know oh she's only got one line or you know it is that yeah because kind of thing. yeah she has two agents where uh it's uh of course there's rumi i mean we'll get to rumi when we mm. have to but yeah. i believe it's mr totokoro where yeah. he's trying to be practical and uh he's pushing boundaries that he probably shouldn't but he's also the more practical of the two mm. so when he talks about how uh or how all of them talk about how acting is the only the natural progression for her mm. that uh this was not a decision that was taken lightly by anyone let's um let's cycle back to the um otaku would be the term sort of culture yeah. Vinny, what was you know you know using your extensive um experience as a weeb what was um <laughs> what was kind of happening around that time with otaku culture and stuff and how did how, how do you reckon perfect blue kind of addresses that it addresses it perfectly with with the rise of the internet just like you can have mm-hmm. all this information all at once. Here's chat rooms. Here's where you can discuss. Like, this just happened today with people across the country. So it really was just, he was right on the money with that. Just her getting a Mac to see, like, oh, what's this thing about me? And just people discussing, like, her daily life. And also just that idea of the, that ownership. Like, no, this this person's mine. Like, they sure, they make content for me, but this person is mine. And also, Craig, I wanted to touch awesome. base with you on how in 1997, this came mm-hmm. out, but also End of Ava came out, and how the opening mm. of that is very similar, where this is what happens with female characters you you idolize and what you do to them. Like, no spoilers for yes. Colin, because I want him to experience End of Ava, but also yeah. it was this idea of here's this prominent female person and here's what i think of you guys what you do to them <laughs> wow okay yeah I, I didn't make that connection but yeah you're absolutely on the money there and um colin i've changed my mind i think you should just watch i think you just immediately watch the film end of evangelion um <laughs> <laughs> just scar the boy no. is this gonna be like a fire walk me thing where it's like it's it front loads the most terrifying thing and then it kind of spoils it but it kind of no. springboards in, in another way no I'm, I'm i'm being completely facetious colin you should absolutely oh, not do that okay. um <laughs> no just slight tangent so the trajectory of evangelion is that it, you know it starts off as a giant robot show it slowly gets into some weird esoteric space which is just fascinating and then end of evangelion is like a surrealist masterpiece <laughs> um so don't don't dive right into, into that film i do want to i do want to pick up on what you were saying though Vinny, about how i guess ahead of its time 
this film was. I have a real, I have a real soft spot for, I guess, early internet films. Yeah, and most of them are terrible. The net with Sandra Bullock, yeah. love that shit. Oh, it's so bad. That shit. Um, oh, I, uh, I, I wish the internet was like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, like the, you know, the, yeah, the, the idea of the internet is, you know, you're, you know, you are flying through a virtual city and, you know, picking files <laughs> out of a digital file. It's so funny. Or, I, I think Hackers is probably the Hackers, only one yes. where it's it, it oh. aged so poorly that it came back around to be yes, like yes. a masterpiece. Yeah, absolutely. Macaulay Culkin, he said that. Uh, that in the case of hackers, it aged like a fine wine that's been stuck in the freezer for twenty years. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really think there's no that's other way great, to put it. That's a great way to put it. What I will say though is that I think that um, you know, and and it did make me laugh when early on in Perfect Blue, I think Rumi was saying, "Oh, you yeah, know, there's a thing about you on the internet," and then, and then you know, me was like, "Oh, the internet! I hear that's really popular these days." And then Ruby's trying to explain what the internet is, and, she, and me was just like, "Oh, I don't understand it, URLs. You know, why yeah. can't you talk most, English?" It's, it's so funny. It's the most 1997 scene that could feasibly exist in yeah, this movie. Absolutely. Uh, and to be fair, like, I, you know, of course, the internet was a new thing at that time, so it, mm. it, of course, there's a lot of leeway, but. That's the only thing for a movie that's so far ahead. It's really the only scene that feels dated, but also yeah. it feels necessary as well to yeah. set off uh, what Mima has to go through uh, in this Absolutely. movie. Absolutely, and I think I think it was probably perfect for the time because there will early on in 1997. You know, the world wasn't as connected as it was now. It was still, I mean, the internet had been around a little while, but it was still relatively in its infancy. But I think what's really impressive about this film is that it almost predicted stuff which is happening kind of now. That's a, that's what I was thinking as well. I mean, things like Mima's try, Mima has these different kind of personas or these kind of personalities, and, you know, that's that's manifested as, you know, the idol and the actress and the, the person, I guess. It's, it's similar to sort of the construction that we all do around, you know, our social media presence. You know the part with the with the stalker and you know how he kind of feels the sense of ownership over her. Um, you know that's you know that's a real. I mean, I guess the, the term for that is kind of a parasocial relationship. So you know when you feel that you can have a conversation with people that you listen to on a podcast or whatever. You know, shout out to everyone. Hey, how you doing? I see you. Um, you know, parasocial relationships like that. It almost predicted that. Um, even things like online identity theft, I guess, is yeah. you know that that's an element of here which you know happens on the internet now you know the, the, this idea that you have a level of access to these people for the first time ever you know that that are famous and that you know that that don't know you but you feel like you know them it protected all the stuff so well and that early it's incredible that, that's what that was something that was uh that was uh, on my mind yesterday about when she goes on mima's room and it's like mm. someone knows her in such like a bizarrely meticulous manner that's really not that far off from like you know we'd say like Instagram influencers for example where yeah. they have this massive following and people at least through that lens seems to understand them in a very needlessly specific manner and uh, yeah no it, it really did showcase just how scary it could be of that you're you're saying about that parasocial relationship. Mm. Are you guys aware of the? I caught this on a video essay that I watched about Perfect Blue last night. Are you guys aware of the? stalker who was stalking the singer bjork in the in the late yes. 90s i've heard of in passing but i don't know the finer details yeah so it was a it was a young man who um 
was obsessed with um, Bjork, you know, young guy, unemployed, overweight. He was, you know, a bit of a, a recluse. And this is, I think this is before the internet was kind of widespread. So, you know, he would absorb information about her through imported magazines and stuff like that. He developed this really unhealthy obsession with her. And I think he considered himself a bit of an artist and, a bit, you know, he would make these video diaries and, you know, talk about his obsession with Bjork. One day he discovered that Bjork was in a relationship with the, I guess, the rapper producer Tricky, who is a black man. Um, he didn't, he, he, you know, he had some pretty grim things to say about that. And he decided that Bjork had been, I guess, tainted. And um, he made, he basically, he, he constructed a, a parcel bomb, which he intended to send to her and did yeah, he sent this bomb to her, basically, and then he locked himself in a room for a few days, slowly, you know, through his video diaries, you know, which are available online, I wouldn't recommend them, but, um, you know, oh. he basically, you could see him becoming more and more unhinged and psychotic, and he ended up um, blowing his head off with a shotgun on camera. Um, the parcel was intercepted, and um, so Bjork never received it. But it's just a, it's kind of a horrifying thing that happened around the same time this film was being developed. And I don't know if any of that was known to Colin or the people that were making the film or anything like that, but um, it's kind of this weird, creepy parallel. Someone that was obsessed with a celebrity that they thought they had, that they thought they knew and felt. I guess, a degree of ownership from, and I guess they didn't have much else going in their life. Um, they didn't have much, you know, you know, there was probably some mental instability there, and um, yeah, it's just a horrible, horrible situation for everybody involved. Yeah. Sorry to bring that downer into the conversation. <laughs> it's okay, Craig. I mean, to be fair, it's pretty understandable why it was brought up, because uh, it's, you know, as we were saying before, there's those really scary parallels, and mm. I think that's what makes this movie, because obviously it's a psychological thriller, so there's enough terror in that regard, but I think mm. the realism is also what kind of adds to that as well. And it's interesting, you talk about realism in a, in a film where the line between reality and, and fiction or, you know, and artifice is, is, um, is always in question. Yeah. Um, do you think if you guys were hungry, do you think you would order dinner from a place called Big Body Pizza? <laughs> uh, yes. Not after this, no. <laughs> I just think, what a, what a strange name for a, a pizzeria. <laughs> like, what, were they advertising how unhealthy they are or what's, what's going on with that? I know it sounds American to me, so yeah. <laughs> you guys have fat burger i guess over there don't you hell yeah we do it's awesome is it i guess on the topic because uh since you brought big body pizza uh because I, I imagine since this movie blurs the line we could probably more so with blue velvet kind of shift back and forth yeah is that that uh the photographer that she uh that uh that is killed i actually think that out of all the bodies in it that's the only one that mima actually killed because oh you reckon uh one of the things i thought of yesterday when i watched is that it's going back and forth between her perform her last performance with champ and then her at the supermarket and going home yeah. and i kind of thought that maybe it was a artistic merit of satoshi Kone wants you to feel this jarring feeling early on but mm -hmm. i also started thinking that maybe this is the way that mima views the world that uh because i i was thinking about yesterday is that what if this movie's about like an unchecked mental illness that's uh that uh mima has rumi has mr me mania has and it's all springboard because of her jump to be uh become an actress because mm. uh because uh, you know when you see her in the reflection and it's that mima and cham that's talking to her about how filthy she is and how yeah. she's, uh, she's not making the right decision and it's really not that far off if not already identical to how she feels personally 
And uh, with her just feeling so, uh, so down and out about, is this the right decision to do? And the acting gig is just like the most abhorrent roles that she could take on. Mm. And it also doesn't help the fact that Double Bind just seems to parallel her feelings as well. And it seems like the script is kind of just happens to be go along with it. And then that's not even going the fact that Mr. Me Mania, it's like you were saying before about uh, the Bjork stalker, where there's that sense of ownership. Mm. And also he has the quote unquote real Mima kind of reaffirming his uh, biases as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he, even, in, even in that realm, there's still a lot of unforgivable stuff that he does. Really one scene, but... Uh, then Rumi, I think that uh, that was something else where, uh, is that, of course, at the end of the movie, she comes out dressed as Mima from Cham. Mm. And the thing is that I wondered, because one of the things I was back and forth on about is that would these symptoms have been really obvious uh, early on? Or was this, like I was saying before, something that set off because maybe her career was going fine enough in Cham, and then the actress thing just completely threw a wrench into it for her in particular? Mm. Sorry, I know. I just realized I just had this massive information dump of a psychological thriller. But, no, no, it's uh, it's interesting to think about. I mean, um, and I guess that kind of speaks to, I mean, you think about, I guess, celebrity culture more broadly. You think about, you know, people that were, I mean, you, you brought up Macaulay Culkin before. You know, you think about people who are, you know, were famous as a child and, you know, the, and the steps that they will often take to establish themselves as, you know, a, a credible adult actor or you know non, not adult film actor but you know what i mean like right. you know um just trying they to do a film instead of a movie you know that type yeah of thing, right? exactly or you know there's a or they'll, or they'll take on an edgy role like someone doing showgirls yeah like a certain um certain saved by the bell star doing showgirls with uh, colin craig loves showgirls Brooklyn as well <laughs> Have you guys seen that film recently? I haven't uh, watched I've never Showgirl. Watched it, but... Craig, why would I watch it recently? Craig, I don't love it as much as you. <laughs> Honestly, it is one of the funniest films you'll ever see. It is hysterical. It's it's such a trashy good time. I really like Showgirls a lot. It's so much fun. Man, that's a sense I never thought I'd hear in the 2020s, but uh, <laughs> I'll take your recommendation. Yeah, so that, that's my recommendation. Neon Genesis Evangelion and uh, Showgirls. <laughs> <laughs> if you play them at the exact same time, look for the similarities. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's. This is rapidly veering off course. Um, what else? What else can we say? Like it's named Perfect Blue, but also the use of red in this film. That's exactly mm. something that was uh, on my mind yesterday. It's like, yeah, for a movie called Perfect Blue, uh, red is like a much more prominent use of color, and I think that. Uh, I was talking about someone last week when, uh, like, uh, is that I feel like Satoshi Kon and David Lynch, they kind of tap in the same vein of creativity. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure Satoshi Kon had, you know, of course, derived a lot of inspiration from Lynch, but I feel like in the case of Red, uh, maybe it's like different for the way they use it, but there's definitely a firm sense of foreboding where even scenes where it looks kind of innocuous, that there's something else at play. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I noticed that uh, Mima's apartment, there is a lot of stuff that's red that's, like, prominent throughout it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, it's, like, you know, through innocuous scenes of, like, uh, like her just uh, just coming home, putting stuff away. And you think that there's, there's just something... Because that, that room definitely feels more menacing as the movie progresses. And yeah. a lot of the most visible confusion I felt was during her scenes in that apartment. And, I mean, I, I could be way off on this, but when she wakes up... The final time, and uh, Rumi's dressed in this, you know, in her outfit or whatever. That's is that Rumi's place? Like is yeah. that Rumi's apartment? That's so right. she's modeled. That was, uh... So she's modeled that apartment on Mima's actual on Mima's room. So she's made a copy of 
Mima's room. That's actually, and I, I thought, because yeah. I remember there's that period near the end where they say, oh, you came over yesterday. And I thought it was just uh, Rumi right. coming over to see Mima. So I thought that that scene at the very end was, you know, it was always Mima's. I never thought it was actually going to Rumi's. Mm. Uh, and, you know, who knows? Maybe it's like Rumi, it's like that that creepy Arnold shrine from Hey Arnold of like, uh, like uh, some creepy <laughs> quasi voodoo Mima that uh, like no one else can ever see. <laughs> wow. Okay. You, were, you weren't expecting a showgirls reference. I wasn't expecting a Hey Arnold uh, <laughs> jab there. Nice. Yeah. So we, we sort of touched on that Mima was doing some, you know, wanted to pursue acting and um, it starts out as, as kind of these small nothing roles, but eventually gets expanded into really edgy stuff including a pretty harrowing scene where she's filming a rape scene. This is a really grim scene to watch. Not just because of the sexual assault that's kind of happening or, you know, the simulation of a of a sexual assault um, that's happening in the scene. There was a bit where the the action's taking place and it you know the the way that it's filmed is that you know you are seeing effectively what the camera on set would be seeing. And then, you know, the director calls cut and everything just kind of stops. And But they ha- but the actors have to, like, stay in place. And, um, you know, the director's like, well, you know, we're resetting the cameras. You know, everyone stay put. And, you know, the the actor that's playing the rapist is, you know, has his hand on Mima's breast. And, you know, is like, oh, you know, sorry about this. And she's like, oh, you know, it's fine. And just you know, she just kind of stares blankly off and, you know, at that light. Just... um. I don't know, that really, I don't want to say it's more disturbing than the the rape scene, but just, just the detachment and the, mm. you know, how she picks it up again, it just, I don't know, it's just really, uh, it's really unsettling. And Because um, that, that, that's also yeah. the time when we see Mr. Totokoro, like, really, like, kind of break down and kind of realize that this was actually a really bad idea to, to have her take on this role. Because, mm. yeah, I think they're like, oh, you know, the times are changing and we need to do some sustainable, but... I think that's the time when he realized that the bottom line is not the most important thing for him, even in his profession. Yeah. Right. And the scene that, the scene that comes immediately after is, um, you know, she's, you know, tries to feed her fish and then realizes that all the fish have died. And that's what kind of breaks her. And just, yeah, all of that, just horrible trauma, I guess that she, you know, had been trying to push aside. It just comes sort of flooding in. It's so effective. What? One of the things I was thinking of uh, since we brought up the fish is I feel like the fish are deceptively more central to the movie than uh, than it probably appears because oh, yeah. the first thing and this kind of comes back to the idea of how Mima views the world is that uh, the first thing we see her say is like oh I forgot to feed you yesterday and mm-hmm. then it shows her feeding the fish again then it shows him dead and then they're alive again and I I mean I, I guess you can make the argument that she off screen bought them or you know bought new fish but. I, I still took this as like an indicator of, you know, where Mima's headspace is at and what's going on in her life mm. and the fish are a way to decode it for lack of a better term. Yeah, potentially. Unless we subscribe to the theory that, you know, Rumi's created a parallel room which has yeah, live fish in it, maybe. Yeah, that's what yeah, I that's always actually a really interesting point. I always took it as when she wakes up in that room, like she feels something's off then when she looks out the window that's when it hits her that this isn't her place because that's when she's yeah. like wait Rumi, what are you what are we what are we doing here and then that's when you know the the reveal the of her day. in the in the costume so that's what i always took where she saw the fish looked outside this isn't my room and and there's also i guess another clue is too early on in the film she takes down the cham poster off the wall 
but then in that scene the the poster's on the wall so i wonder if that's yeah i wonder if we'll crack something here yeah I guess I guess on the kind of to reaffirm that is that there's that part where it's like the two consecutive days that Rumi at least we'll say for now quote unquote comes over, but it shows she wakes up to the exact same thing being reported on the news like oh mm-hmm. hey we have this Japanese group index and this is what it's gonna be, and uh, I that was one where I was like okay if there's one thing that I have a hard time explaining it's why she's waking up to this exact news but with a different thing going on because. Uh, I mean, I felt like I was, like, getting a little comfortable with, like, how I felt about it, but the news thing, that was one where I just didn't really know how to decode or how to look at or how to approach it. I love I love kind of the repeating stuff like that, like like those sort of parallel scenes, and it, it kind of echoes when she's sitting there practicing her lines and she's saying the same mm-hmm. line over and over and stuff again. I also want to talk about, this has one of my favorite cuts ever in a movie where it's when uh, she's in the studio and then she slowly sees the stalker come up and, and, you know, get closer to her. And just that mm. instant where he grabs the face, then it cuts to Rumi closing the trunk. Yeah. Like it's that just immediate, just like, cause in that moment with the first time you watch is like, did he just put her in the trunk? No, it's Rumi. Rumi's putting something in the trunk. And then that's when she talks to the, to the manager about another racy scene it's like oh yeah this is telling you how she's about to kill him because he just brought up how there's more scenes like that for her like well of course he's the next one dead and he is along with the stalker man who's also dead because he completed his purpose (laughs) wow yeah because uh one of the things i was thinking of with mr me mania yesterday is that you know, I think up until yesterday, I thought of, like, the assault he does on her is, like, unquestionably a thing that's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, because, like, you know, he clearly, like, rips off her clothing. But mm-hmm. uh, but then the show, she comes out, and it's, like, not only is it fine, but I think it's a different color as well. Yeah. And I was yeah, thinking of, like, that connection. Yeah, I was thinking about that connection of, like, you know, because at first I thought maybe Mr. Me Mania either he died uh when that hammer hit him or maybe uh may- maybe he failed and rumi killed him you know uh, to dispose his body alongside with mr totokoro i just wasn't sure if you both had a particular take on that in- in- instance i guess there's another parallel here because um the scene where she smacks him in the head with the hammer it's kind of it's kind of like he's not dead but he's not alive at the same time like he's kind of mm-hmm. like just in this in the state of shock functionally alive but something's missing it kind of reminded me of the um the yellow man at the end of blue velvet where he's kind of you know standing there he's you know bleeding out the side of his head and he's just kind of Mm -hmm. standing there and then you know he only reacts to something when you know his radio goes off or whatever yeah it was was kind of similar to that but it's also like he got hit in the head and he had to go take his spot in like the narrative where he had to find his place where he dies like he just kind of he had to read his mark yeah 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 reacted to it then just got into his mark like that was another thing that i caught on with this view viewing of it just going back to what you were saying before Vinny, about like some of those transition shots and some of those match shots and stuff yeah there's there's so many good like transitions in this film you know there's a really cool one i mean we talked about you know the early on you know the very first thing you see is like some power rangers thing which make which makes you think is this the kind of anime that i'm getting into Mm -hmm. um which gets subverted and then later on, there's like, um, a, you know, a really, there's a close up of like, you know, some wide eyed anime girl and you're like, oh, what's happening here? And then, you know, it's, it's revealed that it's just a, you know, it's, it's a picture on a sliding door and the, the yeah. three guys that are just like, you know, narrating on the, you know, just commenting on what's happening 
to the characters and stuff, you know, through what they've read in gossip magazines or whatever. There's this really interesting kind of like Greek chorus, I guess, of, um, mm, mm. you know, just people that giving exposition in this, in this weird way. Something will happen where it will establish, you know, we're looking at one thing and then it just pulls the rug out from under you. So it's so well done. It's masterful. Also, I was thinking like another like thing I got from both of these with Blue Velvet and Perfect Blue was how the ending is like it makes sure to let you know that the woman who is hurting the entire time is okay. Where with Blue Velvet, it ends with Dorothy happily with her son, mm. whereas this one, it's Mima visiting Rumi in the mental hospital. And it's kind of like this thing where it's like, oh, how is she doing? And that's like, how do you feel about it? Well, she's the woman who made me who I am today. And then, like, she just rides off in the sunset. It's like that they're both kind of getting un- wanting to show you that in the end, the woman who was suffering the most was all right at the end, which is this weird, like, similarity I picked on. I feel like they come off as happy endings, but they're actually extremely unsettling. Because uh, in the case of Blue Velvet... Uh, I guess I'll explain the Robin. I don't know if you guys know the story about the Robin, but when it shows the Robin with the bug, what happened was a Robin hit a bus that day, and uh, David Lynch basically effectively taxidermied it himself, and he was the one puppeteering it. (laughs) Of course, of course that happened. (laughs) That's so obvious. And I think, because they talk about it, it's like, oh, you know, it's like, I didn't know bugs do that. And I think that's sort of to set a precedent of how just kind of like, off things are gonna be like it looks nice but some are off but then you see that scene uh, at the end where she's with donnie at the playground yeah. and then it cuts from uh playing the julie cruz song to the last lyrics are like uh, are dorothy Valance saying there's always be blue velvet through my tears and it's like this is not really a happy ending like this right. is this is gonna be so much like her and her son are gonna like deal with this for the rest of their lives mm. and uh to transition that sort of like less than that deceptively somber ending is that in the case of perfect blue uh she does of course you know we see mima go into uh going to check up on rumi but there's that part where the when she walks out is like what that can't be mima her here of all places mm-hmm. and uh i guess I, I guess on a light note it does imply that her career has skyrocketed since that point and also the hair growth kind of reaffirms that mm-hmm. but then there's that part where she you know she looks in the mirror and it's almost like a fourth wall break moment of where she looks at the audience and says no i'm real mm-hmm. and the creepy part is that it's actually not the voice actress who played mima that said that it was actually the vo- voice actress of rumi so if you ever wondered why that huh. last line sounded different and it really makes you think of like oh man what does that imply <laughs> yeah it, it took me five or six years to figure that out i was like no, like I knew something was wrong because there's, you know, in a movie that's as, uh, as like that goes far off the grid as this, there's no real fourth wall breaking moments, but then they save it for the end and they have this very upbeat chipper saxophone song and it, which is a good song, but it's not what you would expect from this type of movie. But when you think of the voice actress being Rumi instead of Mimo, it makes you just think, oh no, this, this, this can't be anything good. Yeah, kind of questions everything. I was going to say, Craig, look, the other 1997 movie with the voice actor isn't acting in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, okay. <laughs> Let's move quickly along from that. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to echo, I was just going to echo a lot of that, especially with the Robins, which are established as, you know, the Robins, they're, you know, as a symbol of love and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, it's clearly a fake Robin. <laughs> it's clearly yeah. a... 
an engineered robin and it's you know it's got this bug in its mouth which you know implies that there's something you know that's something a little bit off it's not you know there's there's always going to be this little bit of doubt or this little bit of um of something else when i watch the ending of perfect blue um and this is probably just me showing what an idiot i am i for some reason i thought that you know but i think it's because mima does have the longer hair you know my initial thought was wait is that the other actress that was in the show oh, double bind probably yeah I, to I be fair like, I, I i can i can understand that because i mean to be fair there's so much to unpack from the, yeah. that last 20 minutes that yeah. it's really not out of the realm of possibility that this would just be a scene from double bind mm-hmm. or yeah and and that got me thinking well you know is was that actress another persona of hers or something along those lines but i think it, i think it probably is more obvious that it you know it just was that she just does have long hair for you know to show time passing and all that kind of stuff but um, but it did raise that question of well, oh, is this a happy ending, or is is there more to this than than meets the eye? And that's what I love about these filmmakers is that you know that that there is this ambiguity, and um, you know, and often that a happy ending has these kind of question marks around it, even if they're subtle. And yeah. that's the thing is that uh, is that you come back to this stuff and you watch it on a semi-regular basis for years and then there'll be a thing that makes like oh wait this thing that i thought i had kind of figured out i just like it throws a wrench into it a little yeah there's little a little detail that uh yeah just throws everything out the window ah oh, so oh, good i guess uh since we since we're kind of in the crossover of comparing and contrasting i don't know if you were both were thinking this but i was thinking about how prominent the topic of voyeurism was for both movies mm-hmm. and how there's a different approach to both of them because in Blue Velvet, uh, Jeffrey Beaumont, it, it, there's a bit of selfish motivation, but you can tell that the, there's a certain sympathy he has for Dorothy, even if it's misguided. Mm-hmm. But then you have uh, voyeurism in Perfect Blue, where, of course, there's Mr. Me Mania, who's the more immediate problem, but there's a ton of people reading this stuff. And it's all, and she starts finding out that it's like, it's not just dead on accurate, but just becomes completely wrong as well. So there's that trickle down effect of not only is this guy chasing me, but like, it's just like damaging my image. And it's just like, you know, skewing her view of the world. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's and the fact that it's called Mima's Room is actually what just adds to that, uh, adds to that parallel for me as well. Mm. What do you think, Vinny? Any thoughts on um, voyeurism? I know this is a topic <laughs> close to your heart. Um. <laughs> I hate you, Craig. <laughs> No, just <laughs> I was also thinking that because I was thinking also another thing with they were like Jeffrey was doing it because he was concerned about well-being of the woman whereas the stalker mm. did it from like a negative place like no I need to this I need to consume this is mine this is who I need to look over just like going back to that first shot of of just her dancing and just being in the palm in his palm yeah. is like i always yeah. go back to like that's just within seconds you know everything about that man what he feels yeah. about her how he views her just that one shot of the palm is like ah oh, i love it i think he i think the scare oh sorry Craig, you go on oh uh, just just really quickly i think i think that character might have one of the most unsettling character designs i've ever seen and yes in the animated yeah. films like he just this i don't know what it, i don't know if it's the teeth or the I, high I cheekbones the or the eyes. tiny like, eyes for me the eyes are like in two different zip codes at any given moment. And yeah, like right. Just where it's like drawn on him, it just feels it's too far off, even from the anatomy of the head we see. It's a total uncanny valley kind of um, kind of thing. It's yeah, it's it's deeply unsettling. I think that in the case, and this is way less applicable to Mima and more so to Rumi and Mister Me Mania, but 
there's like this weird like perverse justification that they have like there's the quote-unquote real mima saying she's the imposter you need to kill her mm. and uh he thinks he's doing the right thing and it's like i was saying before is that even even the realm of that mindset the fact that he thinks he can like sexually assault like the quote-unquote fake mima mm. is a very creepy just you know mm. just jump in logic for him and then conversely we have rumi where i think that it's safe to say that she sees a lot of herself in mima to say you know one way or another and i think that she sees that uh mima taking on these different roles is basically like an attack on her as well and that mm-hmm. like this needs to be vanquished and it's 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 very scary because you know with jeffrey he makes he has a lot of missteps in his odyssey mm-hmm. but you can tell that he at least wants to do the right thing he just doesn't really know how to do it but it's very scary to think how me or uh, rumi and mr me mania just have this like perverse justification for everything they do yeah, I mean, with Jeffrey, it's like, you know, this is like a fun adventure. You know, he's, you know, it's it's a cool mystery. And, um, you know, he's, mm-hmm. yeah, Rumi and Mr. Mimania, I think, just have this, like you said, they have this, they feel that they know who the real Mima is. And they have this view of who the real Mima is. And again, this is another thing which is so topical now is that, you know, in this age where we are putting ourselves out there or putting aspects of ourselves out there into the world, you know how much of that is authentic and how much of that is real and how much what is the real sense of a person it's one of those philosophical questions that um you know don't don't have a clear answer and i'm no philosophy major but um yeah it's uh, it's just one of those one of those things and which has been amplified by the internet and i think yeah satoshi cohen and his crew was just so prescient with that back in 1997 it's really it's like when you see george carlin stamp from the mid 90s where it's Mm -hmm. like oh they're talking about the world today but then you realize Mm. like oh wait they saw this like they saw the rain on the wall and they just knew like the worst case scenario that this would happen because it's like you're saying before there's movies like uh the net or hackers where it's a very out of touch uh very out of touch way of how the people thought like for example in hackers it's like my handle it's like it's just a username like it's not your handle is not like a cool identity it's not this thing you're gonna be like this edgy cyberpunk type of thing it's just it's just a it's just a bunch of words on a a screen that's not that look good Mm. but no perfect blue out of all the 90s movies this like this does the most remarkable job of just basically just seeing what the internet could be in its worst possible ways. Yeah. And also I think this like we were touching on before is that the, uh, the shift of Mima's uh, Mima's career probably had to do with the fact that the, uh, that the, the demographic for Cham wasn't quite what it's supposed to be mm. and how that was also mm. a thing that may or may not have been influenced by the, by the internet as well. Yeah. Right. That's a really interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. I, I forget, and forgive me if it's a if it's uh, J pop stars or even AV stars, but I know that you're basically it's kind of like in here in the U.S. with Suicide Girls is that it's kind of in your contract to say that you can't date. Yeah, and I forget who it was, but there was one Japanese model where she was found just uh, just uh, in the streets with her boyfriend in Tokyo. And there's this video of her with her shaved head crying. You'd, you'd think this was like an ISIS video from like 2014, but she's like, I'm sorry that you, you caught me with my boyfriend. And it's like, I'm sorry I tainted my image. And it's a very tough career to, uh, to, to do anything entertainment related because of this type of audience that uh, Cham was facilitating. Yeah. I'm just thinking this is the first time I've thought about Suicide Girls in a while. <laughs> no, that's right. no it, it, 
<laughs> I, I was gonna say you looked very deep in thought, but yeah, uh, no, but yeah, yeah. Was, well, I, I, I absolutely was. Um. <laughs> but they're they're just they're but there's definitely something weird about how that has to be like in a contract of you can't be seen dating. If you're married, you can't have a ring, and mm. uh, and you think that uh, in, in the case of like when it's a bunch of thirty five to middle age, thirty five plus to middle aged men just going to this stuff, it really does show that there's like. I don't know if co-opting is the right word, but there's just something not right, right with the market. And there's uh and it's kind of like changing the trajectory. And I guess the other one that's probably worth mentioning is that when she leaves Cham, it's strange enough seems to become more successful. Cause mm. uh, her last one was at just some rinky dink, like just like, Oh, Hey, here's this yeah, like, small audience. I don't know, Memorial park tier type of venue. And then, and I mean, not that 83 on a top 100 is like a massive splash, but it's still a pretty good. Yeah, well, they, from yeah, where they, they, were. they made the charts. Yeah, yeah, for the first time. I think it would be less realistic if they, you know, jumped to the top ten from right. you know, relative obscurity. Yeah. But, but you it, know, it's like that. It's like that realistic success. I think yeah. that's what really compounds uh, Mima of thinking like, was this the right thing? Because it shows that when they're on that radio show, you see that uh, fake Mima just like in it as well. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's like it really. And that was something I was thinking about yesterday. Is that wow, this really rubs salt in the wound of all the work she's doing because this is like yeah. right before she starts doing the modeling as well. Yeah. Put yourself in her position there, you know, this, you know, you've, you've worked at a certain career for so long and then you, you make the decision to leave that. And then your group that you're with starts finding some degree of success. And I mean, the first thing that would go through my mind was, well, is that as a result of me leaving, (laughs) you know, what was I the thing that was holding this back or, or did I get off at the wrong time? You know, did I, yeah, it would, be a real dilemma yeah rumi she was talking about how uh when when uh mr toto toto starts saying like oh she needs to make that jump to being an actress she's like oh what about all those lessons she had for singing it mm. it's very much explicit saying that she really just did everything she could to get to where she is at that point yeah and then to just completely change her career only find that her her uh her former uh her former uh bandmates are doing just as you know thriving that that can't be a good feeling mm yeah god what a film guys right like, seriously yeah. what a movie like every time i watch a satoshi Kon film like he has probably the best filmography only a handful of films before he passes away but my god this man yeah. was born to direct i think we mentioned it when we covered paprika like you know i don't think this guy made a bad film i haven't seen all of his films but um yeah i don't from what i've heard i don't think this guy made a bad film yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Perfect Blue, um, Paprika, and Tokyo Godfathers. I, there might be a fourth one I missed. Millennium but, Actress, uh, that's the other one. Millennial Actress, that's what it is. Because uh, I'm thinking that uh, Tokyo Godfathers came out, was around the mid, mid-2000s. Yeah, 2003-ish, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Paprika yeah, was so, the last so, one in 2006. Have you seen Paprika, Colin? That one I did see. Um, I admittedly didn't see Tokyo Godfathers and uh, neither Millennial Actress. And they no, always, I haven't, I haven't and seen actually, I've, I've actually, I've actually checked out uh, Tokyo Godfathers multiple times, but it's just one of those movies where I just happen to just never get around to. Yeah, sure. What did you think of Paprika? Honestly, I, I thought it was a great movie. Um, I, I think there's uh, there's something... Uh, I, I think there's just something about Perfect Blue where there's that visceral tear that resonates yeah. with me more. Yeah, Because uh, when I think of Paprika, I think it was around the time where... I think people were talking about that Christopher Nolan was deeply inspired by it. Yeah. And I was thinking, I think I was looking through it in that lens. And to be fair, this is when Christopher Nolan was still relatively respectable. And he's still respected, but 
it's uh it, it's it, it there wasn't really the memes and it wasn't really yeah. a running joke in some spots so i i think i need to revisit it and kind of like look at it removed from the christopher nolan aspect of it do we do we need to bring up the uh the aronofsky factor here in regard to <laughs> I, perfect so this is something i was talking about with someone and actually believe it or not i was talking about this before you actually asked me to be on this show in particular is that i think that with perfect blue up until probably 10 15 ish years ago i think it was like a director's type of movie because you get those movies mm. out there where uh it seems like it, it doesn't land with a mainstream audience but people who work in the industry love it mm. and i think that's why when black swan because i think because he i mean obviously he made very serious parallels with perfect blue and then jennifer Connelly scene in the bathtub and requiem for a dream oh, yep. and i think that he he mirrored it so much for black swan that I don't know if it's true that he had to buy the rights, but it it, it was a testament. It was to show definitely how a rumor. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is that Black Swan was like this massive landmark of a film, and I right. feel like it's kind of soured as time's gone on because Perfect Blue is now becoming more widely circulated. Mm. So I think people kind of look at it, it's been like a it's like a soft reevaluation of Black Swan, but like oh, it's just Perfect Blue the remake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's a, so I think that it's it's the type of movie that I think directors just didn't really expect would become this massive thing that would be reevaluated by the mainstream. But mm. yeah, it's uh, I I do I do understand both ends, but uh, I think ultimately I'm glad that more people recognize it outside of like the core demographic. We've been talking for a little while. I think we should uh, we could probably start wrapping stuff up um any final thoughts from either of you about about perfect blue i think like like i said earlier it's it'll probably go down as one of the best debut films for any director it's it'll Mm. stick with you you will remember shots from it just moments from it you remember the feeling from it and i think satoshi Kon is probably should be talked about more by so many people like yes miyazaki's still around he's still doing stuff he's probably gonna be at the end of the day known as the best anime director but if Satoshi Kon was still here today, then we he would be up there with like, no, this is the best director alive at the point. It's it's such a huge loss that we that we don't have this man with us anymore. Such a huge loss. What about you, Colin? Any final thoughts about um about Perfect Blue or Blue Velvet? I guess. I mean, I guess this uh, kind of double disc with both of them is that there's this feeling that each movie, and I know with Blue Velvet, it's a little more linear, for lack of a better term. But there's some about the way the the what what gravitates to Lynch and Satoshi Kon is that it's stuff that will always raise more questions than answers in yes. the most rewarding way possible. Yes. Cause there's a reason why we've had this show going on for at least an hour and a half at this point, because yeah. <laughs> there's just so much to dissect and mm-hmm. there's so many different viewpoints. And that's like the most rewarding part. Cause I mean, there's times where other dire- lesser directors would just make it seem pretentious, but there's something that, uh, that Lynch and Satoshi Kon tap into I know with Lynch, it's Transcendental Meditation. Uh, as for Satoshi Kon, I couldn't confirm what it was, but they just they have a certain understanding beyond the language of cinema, and yeah. that's something that is uh, will resonate with me more than like any other traditional film. Absolutely, yeah. There's the, they've both got that just that X factor that just tr- makes their films transcendent above and beyond anything else. All right, so let's let's start wrapping this up then. We usually finish these episodes with um, by putting some songs on a on a playlist. Vinny, have you got any songs that you want to add? You know, these could be songs that are related to either of these films, or you know, inspired by any of these films, or just songs that you like. Craig, you saw my letterbox review. What else could it be? I'm blue, da ba dee da ba die, Eiffel sixty five. 
You know, I nearly said to Colin before this starts, if Vinny doesn't recommend Blue by Eiffel 65 as his song of choice, then I will delete the podcast. <laughs> anything else Anything else you want to put on there as a, you know, to match it up? No? Nope. Speaks okay. for itself. Speaks for itself. Okay. What about you, Colin? Uh, are you a music guy? Uh, yeah. No, it's uh, I, I don't know because I feel like my taste, I, I feel like even though I get older, I still have the taste of basically like an underclassman, like art student at college. Hell so yeah. mine, I can relate uh, to that. So mine is like, so mine is a song called Blue Valentine by Nina. And uh, I kind of, I mean, I know there's the movie Blue Valentine, but I thought like, you know, with Blue being such a crossover for this, that this was the first one to spring to mind for me. Nice. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to go with a similar theme. I'm going to choose uh, Blue Monday by New Order because fuck that song rules. And you know what? You know, I'm going to be selfish as well um, because we I just found out about the sample. I'm also going to put on uh, Jesus Built My Hot Rod by uh, Ministry. <laughs> if you haven't heard the song before, you need to like crank <laughs> it up in your dial because it fucking rocks. All right. <laughs> Cool. Um, Colin, thank you so much for your time today and for, um, you know, humoring us with your observations, um, you know, on these on these two films, which are similar and completely different in a lot of ways. Where can people find you and your work on the Internet? So uh, you can find me on uh, Facebook and Instagram under Cream Corn in the Universe. And then you can find me on Twitter at it's uh, my handles at you stole the corn. Mm. And, uh, <laughs> so that's where I have all my updates. Um yeah, it's uh, it, that, that that's actually a reference of something that uh, that the one armed man yells at Leland, that's and the right. engine's revving so loud that you can barely hear it. That's right. Yeah. But I couldn't fit Cream Corn the Universe in one in in like the limited character, so I thought, oh, you stole the corn. That's that that should be fine. That and of is course, no genius, it, Colin. So, genius. You know, thank you. Nice. But yeah, no, it's uh, you know, I of course I post my weekly episode updates. I uh, I post my updates of what I'm recording or Twin Peaks thoughts as well. So yeah, you can. You're always welcome to, to uh, follow me on either of those on social media, and then also I'm on uh, Apple Podcasts, I'm on Spotify, the, the Podbean app, Google Podcasts, pretty much most of the mainstays. But sure. yeah, so yeah, it's uh, those are my plugs, and yeah, awesome. I think that's it for on my end. Nice. I meant to do this earlier, but I completely forgot. Um, Vinny, we talked about Blue Velvet, the song earlier, because um, Dorothy Valens covers Blue Velvet in mm-hmm. in the film, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that um, a cover of Blue Velvet would sound better coming out of um, James Marshall or Eddie Vedder? <laughs> Eddie Vedder, because fuck James Marshall. God. All right. Oh, that's okay. harsh. Okay. Oh, that's so harsh. All right. We, we, I'm going to count down from three, and we're both going to do <laughs> Eddie Vedder sings Blue Velvet. <laughs> oh, no. Feel free to chime in if you want, Colin. It's, it's optional. It's extracurricular. Okay, three, two, one. This is it all below me. I'm ending the episode there. So hopefully that wasn't too uncanny for copyright or anything. I think we're good. <laughs> I think we're good.